Welcome to Ono, Ross, and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal, but take part ourselves. Yep. When they make the claims, we show up so you do not have to. I'm your co-host, Ross Blotcher. And I'm your co-host, your better co-host, Carrie Poppy. Mm-hmm. And this month marks Ono, Ross, and Carrie's first birthday. Woo-hoo! Woo! We will accept gifts. <laughs> yes, we will. Send us. Uh, particularly in the form of donations. Woo! Woo! And in this episode, we are going to take you through the totally goat-spermy world of creationism. And we've admittedly tipped our hand a little bit on this one, since in every episode of the show, <laughs> we've compared the thing we're investigating against evolution as the prime example of scientific thinking. We want you to know from the get-go that we were a little suspicious going in, to say the least, but we tried to keep an open mind, ask tough questions, and see if there might be something to the story that we didn't know. So let's see what happened. So, creationism. Tell me about the history of creationism. Where did it come from? Ross, I'm so glad you asked. So, creationism takes many forms in many religions. Mm -hmm. Most of us in the States think of uh, Christian creationism. The Judeo-Christian story of Genesis. Exactly. That we all know and love. Right. The first book of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, But, of course, that's not the only form. Oh, wait a second. We're going to get a bunch of emails from people saying, there's actually two creation myths, one in Genesis, and one and in Genesis. Yeah, I'm we know. Ra- oh, no, Ross and Carrie listener, and I know everything. Yeah, we know, okay? Tell us something we, we don't know. We already knew, okay? Genesis right. 1 and Genesis 2 had two different authors we know, okay? But, wait, there's other creation myths? The, well, Ross, God, keep up. Don't you Wikipedia? No. Oh, my no. God. What's Wikipedia? Oh, my God. You are the worst. One thing at a time. You are the worst. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, there are other creation stories um, from other religious traditions. Um, mm-hmm. But we're going to focus on Christian creationism in this episode because it's the one that we're mostly surrounded by in this country. Yeah. And, uh, you know, personal admission here, I was formerly a creationist. Yeah. That is my background. So I uh, was taught creationism in high school, learned how to debate evolutionists. And so I know all that stuff. And uh, escape to college with those beliefs intact. Scary but stuff. But not out of college. True story. Not out of college. There was a transformation. But even within Christian creationism, there are different forms. There's, yes. There are flat earthers who are pretty rare, I'll admit. But Would you still... really include them as a form of creationism? I think that is kind yeah. of a separate thing. Well, I mean, they believe that because they believe in a literal creation of the okay. earth and they believe in the literal interpretation of Genesis. Sure. There's geocentrists who still believe that the Earth is the center of the well, what I guess they wouldn't even call it the solar system. Then. Yeah, yeah, the Earth is the center of the universe. The universe, the yeah. universe. Everything revolves around us, including the and, sun and the Earth. Yeah, including the sun. Right, right. Um, and and both of those, I think, we can very safely say are very fringe groups. Right, very rare. Now, getting into the more populated uh, groups of creationists, we have the young Earth creationists who believe that the Earth was created six to 10,000 years ago. If you go by James Usher's estimate, 4,004 B.C. And literally created in six days. Right, as it says it was in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And then you have the old Earth creationists who agree with modern science that the Earth is billions of years old. They accept that bit of consensus from science, but still say that God had to do it and perhaps even did it sequentially. The days that are mentioned in the Bible aren't really days. They're periods of time, Mm -hmm. eras. And typically they still don't believe in evolution. But then you have to wonder... What was this long era where the sun had not yet been created and yet you had plants that were created on the third day? Yeah, plants. 
Explain that to me, Carrie. They find the sun very tasty. They must be pretty <laughs> hungry. Chlorophyll. And then, of course, the intelligent design proponents who are probably the most modernized version of all these things. That right. The once... newest creationism. Mm-hmm. So they make the argument that life is so complex that it's just not explainable using scientific methods. And at some point, right. you have to admit that a creator must have had something to do with this grand and mysterious creation. We won't say who that creator is. It could, right. be, it could be an alien form. Who knows? Yeah. Yep. And, of course, all of these come from an absolutist position that a holy text is the infallible word of God. And in the case of the groups that we're dealing with in this episode... That holy text would be the Bible. The Bible. So our first outing was to... Reasons to Believe yes. organization, which is headed by mm -hmm. Dr. Hugh Ross. Who shares astronomer. your name. Right. Let's if not you, get confused here. Yeah. If you married him and took his last name, you would be Ross Ross. That would be really confusing mm -hmm. for me and my wife. <laughs> um, I've, I've heard his name for a long time, and we actually got to go see him talk at an open mic forum where you could ask questions, especially if you were a believer in evolution. That's right. That's what they wanted, so... You know, who are we to say no? We showed up. Yeah, we were excited when yeah. we found this one. This was on a Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. uh, not at a too, church? Yeah, not too far away, like in Sierra Madre. Mm -hmm. We were a little out of place, but there were some other people there who were believers in evolution, uh -huh. I think. Just to give a little background on who Dr. Hugh Ross is, yeah. he has a PhD in astronomy and astrophysics. Mm -hmm. His um, degree in astronomy is from the University of British Columbia. With his degree in astrophysics is from the University of Toronto, mm -hmm. also a very prestigious school. Yeah. So nothing to sniff at there. Yeah. He believes in an old earth, but he doesn't believe in evolution. And he believes life was planted here by a supernatural entity. Of course, in his case, the God of the Christian Bible. So he had the skeptics for him, and he kind of laid down the rules and said, don't go on and on with your question. Just ask it, ask one question, and then I'll respond to it. Right, which at first we were like, that's a great rule. Right on. Hey, yeah. good for you. Keep people on topic. Right. Turned but, out in practice. But oh. what, what he does is he oh. takes that one question and then he drones on for uh -huh. a very long time about whatever he wants to talk about, which may or may not have anything to do with your question. Right. So then you're put in this uncomfortable position of standing there nodding along thinking... This isn't my question, but right. I'm not allowed to say anything. Right. I can't keep you on topic. I can't ask you follow-up questions. I just have to sit here and take it. Right. Yeah. Which we did. Yes, which we politely did. <laughs> but once you asked a question, you could go to the back of the line and ask again. So we would just nod, sort of blink, and then return to the back of the line. Yeah, but it took a long time. Like, he would take, yes. I don't know, a good 10 minutes to answer each question. Yeah. This was, what, a two-hour event? Yeah, I think so. And so we would then go to the back of the line, which got increasingly long, and then ask another question. So I was really grateful to you. I think your first question was asking him, mm -hmm. how and old is the earth? How old is the earth and how do we know? He hadn't stated that up front. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I'm glad you got in that double question there. Because, Thank uh, you. Yeah, that set him going. But he said, yes, the earth is 4.5662 billion years old mm -hmm. and, and gave really good reasons about radiometric dating and everything. And mm -hmm. hey, right on, Hugh Ross. Yeah, that was great. And he also, before he even accepted questions, he started just sort of reading these science journals oh, right. without very much introduction. He was just sort of like, I'm Hugh Ross. This is what's going on in science today. <laughs> and started reading these journals and then finally was like, no one's at the mic, huh? Okay, journal number three. And and we were like, oh, are we supposed to go up there? Oh, right. okay. And so then we headed to the mic, and then he's like, oh, good. People are finally asking questions. Uh -huh. like, oh. Yeah, so I asked that. And then you asked something 
About the development of the Earth, something about oxygen? So my basic question was, if God did all this, you know, then why did it take so long? Why did he harbor these, you know, single-celled creatures for so long? Why does it look like the process didn't require him if it did? (laughs) And he said, that's a very good question. And then he went off giving a lot of the scientific explanations for why these processes take a long time. He said, so this had to lead to this. And then, you know, there had to be oxygen in the atmosphere. And then you couldn't support multicellular life and plants. And, you know, he started going off on all these things, which is all fine. But then the question is, which you can't ask, is, well, then why do you need a God at all? Which I think I asked in a follow-up question. And then he said, well... You know, there wasn't enough time for evolution to have done this on its own. It needed somebody there to spark it, to push it forward, and that was that creator. Right. And it's interesting that he would say, well, you need this much time for such and such to take place, Mm -hmm. because if you're talking about God... He doesn't really need anything, right? right? He right. gets to sort of pick the ground rules. And so he kept constraining God to these natural processes. Mm-hmm. Well, he couldn't have just blah, blah, blah. He right. had to let this happen and this happen. And then right. he'd go explaining science and, again. And on the one hand, he's saying, well, God couldn't have just done X. And then where he feels the science doesn't match up, he says, God did do X. He intervened. Exactly. So it's, it's pretty inconsistent. Yeah. And, and yeah. I have to say, like, I was feeling kind of frustrated at this because it was this whole new set of excuses for why the Bible could still be literally true. Mm-hmm. I could just sense young earth creationists being just as frustrated with him as I was sure. for the excuses he was giving to make the science match up with the literal word of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So while we were there, people were asking pretty good questions. Yeah, they were. And really earnest questions. Like this one woman got up and brought up the theodicy problem, although she didn't call it that. But she said... um, The problem of evil. Problem of evil. Where she said, you know, I've wanted to believe in the past, but the problem I always went into is this idea that if God can control everything, why does he let people suffer? Mm -hmm. And Dr. Ross said, well, suffering prepares us for eternity by teaching us lessons, basically. Mm -hmm. I'm summarizing what was probably a 15-minute answer. Right. Which, you know, this poor woman just sort of nods along looking really sad. You know, just like, yeah, I guess. I mean, if that's a God that's okay with you, I guess. And and the usual explanation that, well, it's part of the free will, you know, that things happen naturally. Right. But then, but he even acknowledged free will doesn't make up for tsunamis and things. Mm -hmm. Although then he started trying to get into global warming and getting getting really complicated. But even the things that didn't have to do with free will, they were there to prepare us. So basically everybody who's suffering with malaria in Africa right now, they're just being prepared for eternity. It's just those sorts of justifications really get me a little upset. And you may remember I was getting, I was getting a little. Gary was antsy. Yeah. And I already was because remember before we even got up, he started talking about how animals are here for us to use for fur. And I was like, oh, my God, this is not a way to win me over before you even start. Yeah, that was like one of his first examples. Like the beaver is pretty much there just for us to take its fur and make stuff with it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, And with the whole theodicy thing, it frustrates me so much because you're saying that God can't intervene. But then if you're going to say that, you can't say that he ever does anything. You can't say that he finds you a parking space or he cures anyone of cancer because then you're saying he's being, you know, picky choosy. He's choosing Mm -hmm. places to intervene and not choosing others. So then the question remains, why does he not intervene in these horrible cases that we have to trot out, you know, that we have to be the constant reminder of all these horrible things? Which is a, a very thankless task. After that theodicy question, uh-huh. when it came to my turn again, yes, I said, you said 
to the the nice smart woman sitting in the front there who I was looking at as I asked this question and she was looking mm-hmm. so depressed and I said that very wise woman up there asked you why people suffer if God has power mm-hmm. and you told her it was to prepare them for eternity but you also said that animals are here just for us and that they don't go on to eternity mm-hmm. so why did God give them the ability to suffer mm-hmm. and he said that they teach us object lessons that remember that (laughs) that like well dolphins (laughs) love humans and they make us feel glad about how glorious humanity is because they're they're just just so in love with us they're there as metaphors yeah for the proverbs consider the ant i couldn't even and i i was just staring at him i wish our listeners could (laughs) see me but just sort of staring at him with like my hands up to my temples and my (laughs) eyes roll wide just like is this happening And uh, he just went on and on. He wasn't endearing himself to us, even though he's Mm -hmm. like a very mild-mannered, kind of gentle creature. He was just saying these really obnoxious things. And offensive things. Right, right. That had really bad implications. Right, right. When taken to their logical extremes. Right. So, yeah, wasn't the happiest experience, I guess. But But. when it had concluded, Mm -hmm. we started walking around picking up all our free lit because let me tell you. Oh, yeah. And they've got it in spades. Yeah. Any of these ministries, these Christian ministries, will have tons and tons of free shit to give you. Yeah, it's great. Very generous. At their little merchandise table where they were both giving things away and selling things, they had Phil Plate's Bad Astronomy Anthology, (laughs) which is so random. Because he's good on astronomy. Right. Yeah, it just seemed so random and out of place. And I remember we mm-hmm. joked that maybe they thought it really was bad astronomy. Oh. Maybe they thought it would be. Right. Yeah, that was a pleasant surprise. And then we pointed it out. We had to show everybody, oh, we like Phil Plate. Yes. We like the guy who wrote this book. And everyone's <laughs> we like, found a uh-huh. book that we can wholeheartedly endorse <laughs> right. on this uh, little shelf of yours. But then one of the ministers working for Hugh Ross yes. pulled you aside. Right. And I knew. I said to myself, <laughs> we have to go soon, and I know Ross Blotcher. Yeah. So I better tell them first that they have six minutes. And what she's referring to is my proclivity to sit and talk to uh-huh. people for the longest time. Right. So, and, But so I stopped and I said, guys, we have six minutes to make our points because uh-huh. Ross and I have to go. Yeah, and he was just like reiterating all the points that Dr. Hugh Ross had made, and he wanted to convert me over. And I'm trying to like fill out this little form so I can get my free CD. You know, I'm trying to focus on this, and he's just, you know, is wanting to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. So I've got to say, I, I didn't play nice. I just kind of launched into the. Class. Yeah, I remember you saying, oh, that's so wrong, but I don't have time to tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> more dismissive than my usual style but yeah. you know i realized later what bothered me so much is he had this smarmy attitude yeah this kind of plastered smile and that here let me explain to you why you're so misguided right and uh i just i wasn't digging it sorry carrie but oh, we did no, get out okay. of there you did yeah, yeah i think you got out of there in 10 minutes instead of six but you got out of there yeah so yeah we hightailed out of there and you got to whatever it was you had to do afterward and then we said to ourselves, well, this is not enough. Yeah, that was a little too straight-laced. Yeah, we need a little, something a little more kooky. So we decided we would go to a creation museum. Museum. They have museums dedicated to creationism. Mm-hmm. The closest and biggest one in California is the Creation Museum in Santee, which is near San Diego. And I'd been there once before. I had led a field trip of the Independent Investigations Group to go there. Wanted to see if things had changed. See what they had there in terms of evidence for creationism. So it used to be run by the Institute for Creation Research, which is one of the bigger 
quote-unquote think tanks of creationism. <laughs> right. And it's uh, a competitor with Ken Ham's Answers in Genesis, which right. is probably the biggest creationist organization. Well, the Discovery Institute might yeah. compete, huh? Anyway, so this time we, for the first time, we brought guests with us. Yeah, we thought, let's bring our buddies yeah. with us to the Creation Museum. And, and we wanted to bring people who had a special interest in these topics. Yeah. So we brought our friend Emery Emery, the stand-up comedian and a podcast host as well. Of Ardent Atheist. Ardent Atheist. And his partner on the show and partner in life, Heather Henderson. Yes. And then Don Prothero. Yes, Dr. Donald Prothero. Uh, an author on textbooks on evolution, a uh, respected paleontologist, mm-hmm. geologist, mm-hmm. very knowledgeable gentleman. Yes, indeed. We brought him along with us. And Heather and Emery, well, Emery in particular is a former creationist. Mm-hmm. Heather is a, a former, uh, she said she wouldn't have necessarily called herself a creationist at right. the time, but she right. certainly held uh, beliefs in line with that. So Emery, Emery and I were the former creationists in the group. Yeah, I should say, as I recall, even when I was in the Christian tradition, I still believed in evolution mm-hmm. as much as I can remember anyway. I remember just thinking, like, well, that's a given. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there's no way around that one. <laughs> so I don't think I ever fell into the creationist uh, camp. Okay. Well, as a prop for our trip, I brought along my old earth science textbook. Yes, which you I still did. Had, from Bob Jones University. Yeah. Uh, if that doesn't mean anything to you, look it up online. With time, uh, looking back on it, it's just such a horrible thing to present to high school students. Mm-hmm. It starts out, you know, telling you how unreliable science is in a science textbook. Right. How really you need to rely on God's knowledge. And so we were reading all the different Bible verses and <laughs> the uh, arguments against evolution in the textbook and having a jolly good time of it. Mm-hmm. People can see video of some of these things. Yeah, at... we'll upload some pictures too. Well, yeah, you'll see pictures on our Facebook, but you can also watch a video of our adventures through the Creation Museum, a short little clip. Yeah, and we we had a lot of time to talk about it on the way there. It's a two and a half hour drive mm-hmm. out to Santee, California. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to have a lot of fun, smart people to talk to you on the way there and on the way back. Absolutely. So when we finally get to the Creation Museum, first of all, there's an enormous dinosaur out front, which seems to be <laughs> like that's the thing with Creation Museums and places. They yeah. always have dinosaurs. Well, I and... think they're like proudly saying like, look, we do believe that dinosaurs exactly. exist. <laughs> I think it's the sort of he doth protest too much right. sort of thing. <laughs> You know? Jesus' favorite form of transportation. <laughs> right. We know about dinosaurs. Yeah. Right, exactly. Oh, good. We yeah, don't deny those. We Excellent. love science, and dinosaurs are science. Right, right. And as you walk into this quote-unquote science museum, hmm. there is a pedestal outside that says this museum is dedicated to Jesus Christ. Clearly unbiased. And the admission was free. Yeah. And they have a bunch of free materials you can take, which we did. Yeah, it is funny. Throughout the displays, as you walk through the museum, there's all these additional pamphlets that you can grab. And I loved how on one of them it said, please do not allow children to take these. <laughs> yeah. Essentially saying, you know, they'll collect too many of them. Right, and, and not read them. <laughs> right. So, yeah, don't let the kids get this information. Right. Which um, we agree with. Yeah, touche. <laughs> right. Touche. So we went in and... Straight ahead, the first thing we see is a fake fossil being passed off as a real one. Right. And it's so great having a vertebrate paleontologist there with you 
to point out exactly what's wrong with it. Right. And he said, oh, they bought this from a dealer in Morocco, and uh-huh. <laughs> it's real fossil bed, but they've rearranged all these fossils in an unrealistic pattern that looks aesthetically pleasing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought the fossils themselves were real and the bed was fake. Is it the other way around? I think both were real, but oh. the configuration was oh, wrong. Oh, okay. That's my take on it. And I think at this point we were both like, Don is going to be awesome. Oh, yeah. This is going to be great. The next room we go in and he looks at this mural and says, okay, those two trees didn't exist within (laughs) 20 million years of each other. You know, something like that. Oh, this guy's awesome. So we had the best commentary ever for a creation museum as he showed us, you know, okay, those two fossils there are fake. Uh, This one's genuine. This is a real fossil, except the dinosaur footprint is fake. Right, right. It would never look like that. Yeah, it was amazing. And, of course, uh, well, first of all, our our dear friend Heather wasn't feeling very well, so she was being quite a trooper. Yeah. But Emery immediately (laughs) starts causing a stir and asking questions of this docent who's taking another group around. And we'd already been told, please don't interrupt the tour (laughs) because it's a paid tour. How much did they pay to take that tour? I don't know. Okay. But they, they... you know, fronted some cash to have this right. guy go with them. And Emery gets right down there and starts asking these really tough questions. Right. I, I asked a couple of questions, more softballs. Well, yeah, but you did ask one great one. Uh, I think Emery had started the conversation, but he was talking about how all the people had come from Adam and Eve. And, and he was mentioning their children. And I just kind of innocently said, oh, well, then who, who would Cain or Abel have married <laughs> to uh, create children? He said, oh, they're brothers and sisters. Oh, <laughs> I, I <laughs> thought a very awkward moment. I thought incest was a bad thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I should give his answer. His answer was that the gene pool was just so clean oh, at the time, right. so perfect and unadulterated, with no deleterious alleles. Oh, he didn't say that. That um, they were able to have incestuous sex and produce these uh, perfectly wholesome offspring and uh, a variety of colors. It was great. They had all these like displays explaining how all the different skin colors could have come from the original Adam and Eve uh, mixed skin colors, mm-hmm. and and they showed this little fancy scientific chart of of the children they could have. Yeah, and he did that clever verbal trick where it sounds like he's making a concession, but he isn't. So mm-hmm. he, you know, you would say. Oh, that's incest. Wouldn't they be all messed up? And he'd say, as we know now, you know, I mean, the royal family, like, inbreeds, uh-huh. and you have all right. these terrible problems that come out of it. But, and so he says it in such a way that you're like, he's right. Uh-huh. Oh, wait, he's making my point. Uh-huh. You know, but he makes it sound like a concession, which right. I always think is very Very, clever. very friendly guy. Hard to ruffle, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. Emery certainly did his best. He stuck with the group, and we kind of wandered off. Right, but eventually pulled him away. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite things in this museum was a display called How to Determine the Age of a Fossil. Uh-huh. Yes. And it said, like, bad ways to determine carbon dating, uh-huh. unreliable, <laughs> the strata that it's laying in, unreliable. Right. And it lists, like, five or six things that are all the things we actually use. Right, evidence. Right. And then number seven is the word of God. And it was like, this is the one. This is the only option. It is the only way. (laughs) The word of God. I don't think I remember the words Pleistocene or uh, Mm -hmm. any of those terms in the Bible. Right. (laughs) I I remember from my previous visit, we had had a really friendly docent, a different person that time. And I had asked, uh, again, quite innocently, well, then why is it that the geologic column is always arranged from simpler creatures by our reckoning on the bottom to more complex Mm -hmm. 
ones on the top. He had a very similar response, which was to agree with me. Yes, that's right. They are organized that way. But then he said, it's because clams can't run. (laughs) Right, exactly. Like you have all these simpler creatures that died out immediately in the flood, but then the more complicated ones and the humans, you know, could get to higher ground. And that's why we always find them in that order. What about, you know, the invalid humans who can, (laughs) whatever. Yeah, Uh, a little too clean. Yeah, this guy was also uh, hilarious because every time he would talk about scientific estimates of the age of the universe of the earth they would be talking about billions of years and he was like this uh carl sagan mixed with a duck or something you know saying uh. billions and he just thought that was so funny <laughs> to mock uh, the word billions what a preposterous thing to put in front of years totally you know i was just thinking about the floods in like new orleans and how you mm. know they weren't perfectly you didn't go into the wreckage there and find all the heaviest, slowest things on the bottom, and then right. the babies on the top. Right, you know? especially when you have this catastrophic flood, this right. wall of water coming at Everything you. Everything goes everywhere. You're right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so about three-quarters of the way through the museum, you hit a portion about ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. And in this room, we met one of our favorite people of all time. Oh my goodness, that kid. This kid. This I don't know, he kid. was maybe, what, like 13 years old? He something. seems like, yeah, he seems to be like he was 11, 13 would be my guess. Okay. So we're walking through this this room of recreated Egyptian artifacts. Mm-hmm. And at first, this kid is like pointing at stuff and saying things. And so I was kind of quieting you and Emery and saying like, oh, what does the young man have to say? Mm-hmm. And then I quickly realized, oh, the young man is a compulsive liar because he's saying, <laughs> he's saying, um, this here, um, that's my dad's. He found that. My dad found that. Um, this here is a ceremonial burial knife. Right. And it's my dad's. And then Donald Prothero <laughs> would come by and say, like, oh, so is your dad Howard Carter? Because that was discovered in the 1920s. <laughs> right. And so he'd say that his dad is an Egyptologist and... Mm-hmm. His dad owns his own museum, not this one, but it's in Egypt. I think it, it took about that much conversation for me to be like, okay, I'm done with this kid. Right, and I you just guys moved on. moved on, and I'm too polite, so I'm standing there nodding at him, and I'm a little intrigued, I must admit. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, so we had to get rid of a bunch of the artifacts because they were <laughs> cursed. cursed. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, how did you know they were cursed? Oh, because if the spirits are in them, then they're cursed. Okay. This kid, and he kept following us around, just saying this ridiculous stuff. Right. But then, then he says, he says to me, he sees you and Emery still around the corner, and he says to me, "Can we talk in private?" Mm-hmm. And when an eleven-year-old asks you to talk in private, the answer is probably supposed to be no. Right. Yes. But I didn't really know what to do, <laughs> so I was like, okay. <laughs> So then he pulls me into the side room and sits me down and starts telling me very personal information about his bathroom habits, and it was very uncomfortable. And then at some point, uh, I said, how old are you? And he said, eight. And I was like, oh, no, you're not. No, you're not. So (laughs) as we were leaving that section of the museum... There were two amazing things. One was a display about how global warming is a big old myth and not caused by humans. That was great. And then the next... Why not? Why not? If you're going to... Sure. Yeah, at this point, you're like an hour and a half in and you're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, fossils, (laughs) world of God, okay, uh, oh, okay, the Ice Age didn't actually happen, all right. Yes. Um, Oh, global warming's a hoax, Sure. fine, all right. You got got me there. (laughs) Then the next 
next display is called The Truth About Eternity, which really sums up, you know, the real thrust of this museum. Oh, uh-huh. And The Truth About yeah. Eternity tells you We're about... We're selling you on belief in Jesus and right. eternal life. The last room you go into is a room with a TV in it where the owner of the museum is telling you all about his conversion to right. Christianity because he's a Jew for Jesus. Mm-hmm. In front of a big picture of, uh, I don't know, the Wailing Wall or the Temple or right. the Temple yeah. Mount. Yeah. Something like that. They had like a hallway uh, that was kind of fun to look at with Donald Prothero. I think while you were talking to the crazy boy, uh, <laughs> they um, had a list of all the scientists, you know, on one side, good scientists, you know, who believed in God. And so Don's saying like, well, of course, Newton believed in God. Everybody did at that time, mm-hmm. you know. And then, you know, those bad scientists who don't believe in God, you know, and tried to use science to disprove God. And so they kind of separated them on either side of the wall. Oh, also we should mention there were no cutouts or large statues of Adam and Eve. A little disappointed there. That would have been nice. did you want that? Yeah, I wanted like Eve with the hair just barely covering her nipples. You know, that would have really made it. They have it in Kentucky. For Mm. God's sake, why can't they have it in California? Adam and Eve are always super hot. It's never just like kind of a short, stocky Adam. Right, right. Well, you know, when God created his ideal humans he intelligently designed them and wanted them to be super sexy right not like the people you see on the street these are like cover models and then of course i would want to see do they have belly buttons or not Mm -hmm. which sometimes they cleverly will cover up by having things like blocking you know right they do that in all the medieval art paintings yeah Yeah, exactly Mm -hmm. so there was plenty of controversy when we got back out yes. to the front. A little more than we'd planned for. <laughs> we went back out front. The docent wasn't back out yet, and we had been kind of itching to talk to the docent. Right. So first we started talking to the receptionist, who I had already met, and who had told me, when you come back out, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. And I said, oh, do you have a science background? And he said, no, but the docent does, so if there's any question I can't answer, he'll be back around. Yeah, and he oh, said, okay, you know, right. like, oh, I don't really know that much about science. And I was thinking, like, oh, you picked the right place. <laughs> but, I mean, a fair enough admission. Yeah, yeah, sure. We just said, you know, I don't really like to get into the mm-hmm. debates or anything right, like right. that. Right, right. So we asked him a couple questions that he didn't really know the answers to, which was totally okay. Yeah. Well, I um, asked him, like, about how many people come on average to mm. the museum. And he was saying, like, well, this is a really packed day. And there had been a fair amount of people there. But uh, he showed us the little tally sheet for the day. It was less than 100 people that had been in there through the day and they're not charging any admission so right. um, they're not raking in cash on this not at all but the docent so did eventually come out i was recording this on my video camera which they knew i had i don't know if they realized it was on or not mm-hmm. but we, again you can see a lot of this this footage on our uh, web video kyotoonopodcast.com and we started talking to the docent again a very um, jovial fellow very tall kind of thickly built mm-hmm. yeah d- very jolly with a white beard and everything mm-hmm. so we started asking him you know some nice questions and yeah we said so why do you think evolution is so widely accepted if uh, it's so clearly not true and he said well you know it's funny if you ask the paleontologists why they believe in evolution they'll tell you well I don't really have any evidence myself, but um, the astronomers do. And then if you ask the astronomers why they believe in evolution, they'll say, well, I don't really have any evidence myself, but the biologists do. And if you ask the biologists, they'll say, I don't really have any evidence myself, but the paleontologists do. You know, by the time you get to the end of it, no one even remembers where they started. (laughs) He was so proud of himself for giving Mm -hmm. us that answer. Right, right. And of course... At this point, I already can't wait to unveil our surprise guest, a paleontologist. Right. Is that true? But I don't want to 
don't want to jump the gun yet. Uh-huh. So we're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So kind of passing the buck. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And he was starting to say how, and there are many scientists who have signed on saying that they have, you know, doubts of evolution. Right. And that's where I wanted to jump in with Project Steve, but we saved mm-hmm. that for later, too. Right, right. He was also trying to make a point about irreducible complexity, essentially, right. an intelligent design argument, by bringing out this model of the eye and saying, well, there are these muscles that are just perfectly attached to flex the the eye and so it can focus how how would that have happened i mean those amino acids you know that that make that protein they don't think yeah they don't think so how would they have ever formed that way and so which which made me like oh okay i thought you got the basic concept yeah it's like taking it back like oh where do we start yeah this question right it's just naive on so many levels but okay yeah. well you do it stepwise slowly and gradually and right. we started to and explain then, that a bit yeah and then he just kept saying but how does it know to do that how does it know to do that and finally we said it doesn't it doesn't know uh-huh. it's it's that you know organisms that had uh features like that survived mm-hmm. and then those that didn't died off and right. their offspring developed more and more features like that and there's more than 40 survived. different types of eyes within the animal mm-hmm. kingdom that have come about that way Right. And uh, having a little bit of sight is better than none whatsoever. And so, yeah, there are. And then he said, Are you sure? And we're like, Are we sure that a little sight is better than none? And he said, Yeah. (laughs) We're like, Yes, we're sure. Yeah. So Emery comes by and he, you know, shows his glasses. See, see, this is some sight. This is better. Right. right. (laughs) Yeah. And then we said, Maybe we shouldn't have even gone here because I think we were losing him already. Right. But we said, well, you know, there are some animals that actually do better without sight. So they've developed, you know, they at one point had it and they've right. developed not to. So right. that you cave know, animals and whatnot. Yeah. And then, of course, he's like, well, that's devolution. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> So clearly you don't uh, understand what this means. You're right. And then Emery was trying to explain that there is no direction to evolution. There's no right. outcome. That's only if you're biased, you know, from a certain perspective and mm-hmm. think that evolution is trying to achieve a specific us. goal. Yeah, us. Exactly. Right. That we are the pinnacle of evolution. You know, at, at this point, I think he's he's like, oh, no, I don't really know how to have this argument. But I know I have some good guys on my side. Mm. So I'll just let them know about how Darwin himself... Oh, don't you love that? Well, Darwin obviously disagrees with this whole museum, but we're going to use him, we're going <laughs> to use his quotes to prove why we're right. Right. So, so look, in the sixth edition of Darwin's Origin of Species, he clearly states that he doesn't believe natural selection can explain increasing complexity. Right, and we say, oh, can we see that? Mm-hmm. And he goes and gets the book, and so the quote was... I have now considered enough, perhaps more than enough, of the cases selected with care by a skillful naturalist to prove that natural selection is incompetent to account for the incipient stages of useful structures, and I have shown, as I hope, that there is no great difficulty on this head. Yeah. But he didn't include that last sentence. Right. So he just included the first part where Darwin says, I have considered these cases that seem to disprove natural selection. Right. But doesn't include that part where he says, and decided that they don't hold water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Quote uh, mining Darwin. Yeah, and of course, because this is from this one particular edition, we're just like, okay, well, that appears to be out of context since he spent his entire life defending this theory. Right. So this is finally where Don 
is uh, kind of hanging around on the fringe of this conversation, right. looking increasingly upset. And he was very nice afterwards. He said that we had given really good explanations and answers to the docent, but by this time, yeah, he just couldn't take it anymore. Right. Um, and well, and I brought him into the conversation. Oh, that's right. You said, well, we brought I up said, paleontologists. Well, I said, you know, to the docent, I said, you know, you made that point that um, paleontologists don't have their own <laughs> evidence for evolution, but they say, oh, uh, the astronomers probably do, and the astronomers say, well, I don't have any, but the biologists probably do, and so on. And actually, my friend Don here is a paleontologist, so Don, is that what you would say? <laughs> and Don is like, no! And then uh, poor guy was was saying, legitimately saying, you've really slandered my profession. Right. He's been doing this for, you know, like 50 half years. a century, yeah. Yeah. And, and that he's worked with the, the fossils that these people are faking. And and the docent had also, like, tried to quote Niles Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould as dissenters from evolution. And I had said, you know, no, they were just making a point about the rate at which evolution occurs. They weren't speaking against the Darwinian model. And so Don just launched into the guy and said, this is bullshit. You are taking these people out of context. And I knew Niles Eldridge. He was my teacher. And I was friends with Stephen Jay Gould. And they hated people taking them out of context mm -hmm. like this and trying to use them as creationist arguments. And, and to this guy's credit, he would say, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, like, he'd, he'd he, back yeah. off. Yeah. Like earlier, he, you know, I was asking about what would be the implications uh, for society if people believed in evolution. I was kind of curious to get his response to that. And so he was saying, oh, well, you know, it would lead to like atheist regimes like the Nazi regime. And so we kind of laid into him quickly and said, no, no, that the Nazis and Hitler were Catholic. And he said, oh, OK, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. And mm -hmm. he admitted mm -hmm. the point. So, yeah, he would he'd be willing to accept some things we said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think at this point <laughs> we were just feeling kind of bad for dragging Don into this, even though I think right. overall he had a good experience. It was obvious that this is really hard for a person who spent their whole life to go through this experience. And I think you and I take that for granted because yeah. we get this sort of glee out of the preposterous. Yeah, it doesn't, oh. doesn't bother us. It doesn't affect right. us. But, you know, we're admittedly going into things that we haven't spent our whole lives combating. And right. he has. And felt so bad for him. Yeah. But we finally said thank you to our docent and headed out of there. And I got... Don, a special bumper sticker <laughs> that said, if you think global warming is bad, try the fires of hell. And he liked that very much. And if that can't brighten up somebody's day, I don't know what can. I don't can. even know what can. And then we went home. Yeah, we did. Uh, two, two and a half hours drive home and reflected on uh, what we had learned and what we had not learned. <laughs> yeah. At the Creationist Museum. So that was pretty much amazing. Yeah. And we took pictures of all these things that you can see on Facebook.com mm -hmm. slash OnRack. Took video again that you can see on our Facebook page or our website. But Ross, before we review all our ratings, yes. which I know everyone is dying to hear, mm -hmm. I'm dying, mm -hmm. I think we should do a couple donor shout outs. Yes, we should. Because we have very generous donors. Yes, we do. And they're all men this time. So ladies, we need you to step up, step up and give yeah. us some money. I noticed on Facebook, we have a ratio of two to one. You know, mm -hmm. there's two men for every one woman. So it's wh true. What do you want from us, ladies? Come on. Do I need to take my Come clothes on. off? Come on. If that's what they want, Ross. Okay. They that, just need to vote for it on the Facebook want. page. So we've got shout-outs for David Whiteman. Woo! Woo! David Whiteman! Yeah! Woo! Mike Parker! Mike Parker! Hello! And Timothy Condon. Woo! Thank you guys so much for Thank supporting you. the show. So, Carrie, the yep. first 
rating then would be pseudoscience rating. How would you rate this experience on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is something incredibly scientific, like, I don't know, the theory of evolution, Mm. and 10 is something completely crazy, like a creationist museum? (laughs) Boy, that's a toughie, Ross. (laughs) (laughs) And Um, I'm talking like a six-day literal creationist mm, museum. Oh, my God. How would you rate this experience? Well, so we had two experiences. Yes, we did. We had the reasons to believe experience with Dr. Hiros, and then we had the Creationist Museum. And if we hadn't had the Creationist Museum, I might have given Hiros a higher rating. Yeah, right. <laughs> but having seen that museum, which is pretty much made of goat sperm itself, right? I would have to give the museum. A, a 10. I'm tempted to be a dick and say a 12 or something. To 11. But I, but, but I won't. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I'm a good person. That's why we have scales. So that's definitely a 10. Yeah, I think we've reserved 10. For creationist museums. Exactly. But uh, Hugh Ross, I would give something more like an 8. Yeah, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Oh, holla. 8 and 10. Yep. Woohoo. High five. Bam. Okay, how about pocket drainer value, where one is something not at all pocket draining, like a free creationist museum, Mm -hmm. and ten is something very pocket draining, like getting to the highest level in Scientology. Okay. Yeah, well, actually, on on this account, they scored quite well. Both experiences uh, provided us with a lot of material for no cost at all. Except for, you know, driving two and a half hours to get to Santee. Right. But they uh, didn't know where we lived when they oh, set up the museum. Absolutely. And, and our docent even wanted follow-up meetings with us. And we said, oh, we'd love to talk to you more, but you're too far away. So on that scale, I would give it a one because, uh, yeah, they're very generous. They want you to believe this stuff, and they are willing to give you free stuff to do so. Yeah, we are one and the same. I would give them a one also. So what would you rate this experience on a, a creepiness scale? Where one is a lovely rainbow in the sky after after the fresh fallen rain. Uh-huh. And ten is something incredibly creepy, like one of the people who sells cell phones at the mall. That creeps you out? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and they're dressed like a clown. What do you want from me? That's still Cl- like a Clowns six. are always creepy, okay? Oh, my God. You are a wimp. All right. Um, <laughs> the I... listeners are going to back me up on this. Clowns are creepy. <laughs> oh, you know, on one of our episodes, you said, like, a really creepy thing. Like, you wake up and there's a lamb there. Oh, right, with glowing eyes <laughs> with staring glowing... at you from the foot of your bed. Yeah, but and you're you like, said she, so had, she had blue eyes. Anyway, my oh, coworker um, said she listened to the episode and she was like, I love that sounded adorable, too. Oh, (laughs) Anyway, um, so creepy things. I would say that other than, and this isn't creationism's fault, other than the 11-year-old pretending he was eight and pulling me into a side room to tell me about his bathroom habits. Yeah, totally unrelated. I I would say I wasn't creeped out in the slightest at any moment in this entire investigation. And so I would have to say one. Okay, I'll give it like a three just because... Some of the ideas being thrown around or just when you try to contemplate somebody actually believing that about okay. the age of the earth and the n- nature of the races, uh, you know, it's just... It, you feel creeped out. Yeah, huh. I get creeped out a little bit knowing I, I live amongst these people and I used to be one of them. Oh, okay. All right. Fair enough. How about the danger rating where one is something not at all dangerous, like eating a, a vegetable sushi roll from Trader Joe's? 
And 10 is something quite dangerous, like jumping out of a plane, but not even one of those planes you jump out of, just jumping out of a passenger plane. In general, right. Yeah. I would say the danger rating was one. I, I never felt danger in any sense, though it got a little uncomfortable when things got confrontational near the end there. But I wouldn't say I ever felt like I was in danger at any point. Yeah. On a personal level, I totally agree. I didn't, I think anyone could join one of these groups or go to one of these museums and certainly suffer no harm to their person. But on a cultural level, there's obviously an extreme danger of oh. our kids being undereducated and yes. that having massive effects on yes. society and oh, science good education. Point. So that, that makes it kind of a funny situation because, yeah, on a personal level, I would, yeah, exactly, a one. And on a societal level, I'd want to go to like an eight. Okay. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. So that brings mine back up to a five. I'll average out at five. Okay. Fair enough. How then would you rate this on the awkwardness scale, where one is something not very awkward, like saying hi to your mom when you're visiting her? Okay. And 10 is something incredibly awkward, like presenting a lecture that you haven't prepared for, but you have to do it all in baby talk. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of our would you rathers you in your board game, <laughs> yeah. Ross. And you won because it was so awkward. It was a really good one. Okay. Well, on that scale, <laughs> I think this is a solid five for me because I did feel, especially at the Creationist Museum, mm -hmm. like, oh shit. What? I. I like, I, di I didn't even know how to talk to you. I thought I would know how to talk to you. Oh, you know, right. I, like, I didn't even know where our baseline of common understanding was. Mm -hmm. So as we were talking to that docent, and he started to say, well, how does the protein even know? Mm -hmm. I had to sort of take this step back where I was like, oh, you have no information. I mm -hmm. thought you just had sort of bullshitty add-on information to justify right. evolution. You don't even know what it is. So I felt awkward and, like, at some point you're just sort of smiling and nodding and saying, like, I guess we disagree. <laughs> right. you know? And so that, that gets to feel a little strange. I yeah. think that's that's a solid five for me. Okay. Yeah, I'll say it's yeah five or six. I'll say six just because, yeah, you get yourself into awkward situations you know, just by the nature of disagreeing on this very important mm -hmm. scientific issue. Mm -hmm. So yeah, fair enough. Creates awkward situations. It was definitely awkward with the smarmy dude at the uh, reasons to believe, mm. which I think should be called excuses to believe, by the way. Oh, mm. right on. Smackdown. Yeah, you know, speaking of that, it was also awkward when uh, Hugh Ross was saying all that stuff about animals, and I sort of blurted out at him, yes, well, you've never been a dolphin. <laughs> and everyone kind of looked at me. That was kind of <laughs> awkward. But it's true, he's never been a dolphin. He hasn't, okay? He hasn't. Pretty sure of that. Ross, mm -hmm. what was your favorite moment of this investigation? You know, I think I'd say my favorite moments were just having these fun conversations with Don, Emery, and Heather in the car, you know, oh. on, on our way to the creation And museum. Carrie. Oh, yeah, you too. Oh, I just count as you now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a given. <laughs> So, Carrie, what did you enjoy the most? Well, it has nothing to do with creationism. I'm sorry, folks. But it was this 11-year-old oh, no. kid pulling <laughs> me aside and saying, can we talk in private? 
It was so uncomfortable, so supremely uncomfortable. And then just the way he stared into my eyes so intently and told me about his bathroom discomforts (laughs) was just, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like it. I was so glad when uh, other adults took him away. (laughs) So, want to hear more of us going on crazy expeditions? I do. Me too. Well. But, but. But Ross. What? What? How am I going to hear more Ono, Ross, and Carrie if you guys run out of money. Oh, if you can't afford to drive to other states or <sighs> attend conventions. Yeah, what what will you do? I don't even know. What could I do to make sure that doesn't happen? You could donate. <gasps> oh, how do I do that, Ross? You can go to onopodcast.com and click on the donate button. Oh, that sounds great. And <laughs> so then convenient. and then not only will my favorite show Ono Ross and Carrie continue, but I will feel good about myself. You may be given a shout out on our show. Yeah, yeah. Well, That's it for our show. Our producer is Ian Kramer. And our theme music was written by Brian Keith Dalton of Mr. Deity fame. You can find us on the web at onopodcast.com or facebook.com slash O-N-R-A-C. And be sure to check out our pictures by liking us. Thanks for being a part of our first 12 months of investigating, interviewing, and drinking hot drinks. And remember, this show may be young. But the earth is old.